0: Welcome to Heart of the Matter. I'm Sean McCraney, your host. We have an informative and fun show tonight. Let's have a word of prayer to start our show off. Father God, we love you. We thank you. We're grateful for all you bestow upon us. Help us, Lord, to have your spirit with us as we go into this message tonight about culture and help the listeners and viewers to be able to sense what is true and what is not. In Jesus' holy name, amen. In junior high school, I grew up in Southern California, and I really wanted to belong to the surfing crowd. And as part and parcel of being a surfer as a junior high schooler was not wearing socks. So I never wore them when I went to church, and we had a bishop of the ward who was not fond of young men not wearing socks to church. And so he would come in and he would, uh, he would pull my pant leg up and look at them and, and he would make a comment about needing to wear socks and he talked to my parents about needing to wear socks and the other boys weren't wearing socks either and it was kind of his pet peeve. Now I know this happens in all religions but we're going to talk about culture tonight and so whether you're LDS or a Christian in a very legalistic church or you're a Jehovah's Witness or you're a Muslim, culture plays a part in every one of those and I'm going to give you some things that you can look at to see if culture is, has two dominant of a role in your religious faith. As I grew up and became a teenager, I still never wore socks, and by the way, I am wearing them now, so don't email me. And uh, I went to a dance that was really popular uh, this one night, a church dance, and I went and I went and I stood in a group with all my friends, and this same bishop came up and he grabbed my pant leg, lifted it up, and he said, go home. And. I was extremely embarrassed, and I knew at that point that it was a conform or be cast out situation within the church. But it also planted a seed in me to start examining religion relative to what they did, what pressures they used, what manipulations they would use to get you to do things their way versus what God cared about or not. And these events, though I wasn't aware of it at a time, ignited a personal fire in me to really examine organized religion. Last week, I received an unfortunate phone call from a friend, uh, parents, that the friend passed away. He's my age, and he died on his parents' couch unexpectedly. They had a funeral, and they were, this funeral was visited by the same guys from the same hometown community, and the same bishop, who was the bishop of our ward at that time, attended as well. Uh, I decided long ago that I would go everywhere, including this television show, being who I was as a person and not try to conform to the outward demands of a religious institution, including how I dressed. I went to the funeral dressed in a regular Hawaiian-type shirt, my Levi's and boots that I wear everywhere. As we stood at the graveside service after it was over, this same bishop, who used to get on me when I was a deacon, who kicked me out of the dance when I was a teenager, walked up and said to all the adult friends gathered around no one told me this was a casual event and uh, i made a comment back to him that if he needed some information about anything in the church he could call me and i would inform him and he walked away a bit disgruntled another friend from this group who embraces mormonism greatly then proceeded to make personal comments about uh, my wallet which has a chain on it for a very good reason i lose it everywhere but uh, he made the personal comments about that and got people laughing about the style of the wallet I wore. And in the end, these were two very, very LDS men who believed it was their place, yes, even their right, to look at another person and bring them down before others in the, under the auspices of religion, under the auspices of what is true or what is right or what is good. The wallet I wear and the clothes I attend to a... Uh, a The clothes I wear at a friend's funeral, unbelievable to me. What the heck leads people, especially in religious organizations, to get so picky and so consumed with the outward appearance of others? Have you ever looked around and said at the church you attend, I'll bet Jesus would have nothing to do with this? Or said, I wonder how Jesus would be received if he walked in to this church today and sat down? Would he be embraced and loved or would he be pushed around? Now, that's definitely an adolescent argument. You know, adolescents argue with their parents about cutting their hair because Jesus had long hair. Why do I need to? And to some extent, I think they have a point. I received an email a few weeks ago from a very nice man, and I pulled it out. It really points out the dichotomy with everything that goes on in the church. Let me read part of it. It says Dear Sean, I feel so ashamed. I feel like I am betraying everything I have ever known, but I feel empty inside with what has been shoved down my throat for years on end. The saints pretend to practice love, and many may, and many may. But it was, I was 12 years old and I took my sister to the Mormon church meeting when she said she wanted to know God. We were ridiculed, harassed, and pestered until my sister broke down in tears and ran out of the church. My mother smokes and still does to this day. This prompted those saints to ask us if we smoked but, uh, and that they knew that we did because they could smell it on us and to move at the back of the Sunday school class because we smelled bad. In sacrament meetings, some people got up and moved away from us because we smelled like smoke. My sister was so hurt that uh, she may never seek Jesus again in her life. I am pained by this proposition. I know that the church is perfect, but the people aren't. I have a little son I love so much. He goes on, he says, please help. I don't know what to do. And he signs his name after he gives a few other comments. This is culture that is being inflicted upon him and other people who have weaker uh, constitutions in the face of attack. Does this kind of junk go on because people believe God desires these actions or is it the result of their doctrine or is it just culture? Let's talk about culture for a minute. In the back of a book that I wrote called Born Again Mormon, Moving Toward Christian Authenticity, I quote in the Appendix One from a guy named Dr. Robert J. Lifton. Now, Robert J. Lifton is an expert, an expert in totalistic methodologies. And what those are, are those are the methods cults. Now, I'm not saying that your church is a cult, no matter who you are. I'm not saying you're a cult, but I'm saying Robert J. Lifton has studied cults and he came up with eight, eight rules that are found generally among all cultic movements. Now he did his studies in China, and he studied the communistic cultic totalist methodologies that they use on the people to keep them in control. And I think, and he believes, that they apply to any cultic movement And I think all religion, to some extent or another, applies uh, these cultic or totalistic methodologies to religion in some way or another. The question you have to ask yourself is, how much of this is part of the religion I belong to and how much of it isn't? By the way, Dr. Lifton, uh, he attended Cornell University, received his medical degree from New York Medical College. He uh, sits on uh, the John Jay uh, University, John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York, and he is the Fund Research Professor of Psychiatry at Yale University. So he's not a fly-by-night, doesn't really know his stuff guy. He knows his stuff when it comes to this topic. Okay, so let me give you these eight rules, and then we're going to open up the phones. First, environmental control. The group seeks to control human communication within the environment. So whatever you're saying back and forth, it's controlled by something that the the group says you need to do. At an extreme, it is an attempt to even control people's personal thoughts. There is a controlling influence over all that a believer sees, hears, reads, and even writes. The leaders may hold long seminars, meetings, events, and lectures with authority on behavior. Behavior is very important to cultic groups. They set up and reinforce an us-against-them mentality. The casual or official monitoring of individual change within the group occurs. So they casually or they officially monitor to see how a person's progressing through their meetings and their and their gatherings. Number two, mystical manipulation. In other words, they manipulate spiritual experiences. There is extensive manipulation of attitudes and behavior within these groups. They promote patterns of emotion. Emotion is very important in cultic groups which seem spontaneous but have actually been orchestrated often unconsciously by leaders of believers. Sometimes you'll see somebody get up and they'll bear a testimony. Uh, A number of years ago, somebody invited me to a meeting. I think I mentioned this. And they got up and started bearing testimony after testimony about the product and how much it's changed their lives and how good it is. And they they bear these testimonies and it looked like a spontaneous event, only to find out later that many of them were asked to go up and do that. And that was for a... um, one of those multi-level marketing things, Amway conventions that I was at. Leaders claim to be agents or chosen servants of God to carry out mystical imperatives. I am the representative of God. You must do this thing because God wants you to do it. Principles of the organization are placed forcibly and claimed exclusively so that the cult and its beliefs become the only way to truth or salvation. Meaning they say, you won't be saved, you can't go to God unless you stay in this group. And when they start throwing that stuff out, those bells better start ringing. Because it's a way to keep you there and to have control over you. Individual believers themselves, the members, become psychological pawns and participate actively in manipulating others under the auspices of supporting the cause or truth. The members are in there fighting for it. Leaders central to mystical manipulation, whether they're dead or alive, often become more real and identifiable than the notions of an abstract God and therefore often become more attractive to the followers than God himself. So what happens is these leaders are so big and they're such cults of personality that they become more important than God himself in the cultic movements. Have you seen that happen in your religion? Do you ever see maybe pictures of people that have been held up as just being bastions of of wealth of information and, and that you should follow them? Follow them? Demands for purity, number three. The world in a cultic movement becomes split between absolute evil, the world, and absolute good, the totalist group. Members must continually conform to the group's norm or meet increased rejection or correction. Tendencies toward guilt and shame are often used as emotional levers to influence control and manipulate the actions, thoughts, and behavior of believers. This is a big sentence here, and I'll try to explain it, but if I can. Black and white thought of believers becomes almost impenetrable by the rational complexities of inner sensitivities and the complexities of human morality. In other words, there is a great denial of human complexity. You are either in or you are out. It's black, it's white. They deny human complexity because complexity cannot be easily understood, controlled, or effectively addressed. If you have complex issues, you are selfish. You must either be black or white in your beliefs. That way, they know where you stand and they know how to control you. A radical separation occurs between the pure and impure within the organization and the the mind of the believer, himself or herself. There is a focus on confession. A believer must confess when he or she has not conformed. Now remember, I'm talking about a guy who studied communist China, and he studied what they do in communist China to control the minds of others. If this applies to your religion, then it does, and you might want to rethink it. Confession, number four cult confession goes beyond normal religious, legal, or therapeutic expression. Confession becomes an end in and of itself. Confessions are accompanied by criticism and self-criticism with a major push towards self-improvement and personal change according to the totalistic rules. I have always thought as a Christian that I go to God and I do my confessing, and He works with me on on self-improvement and I don't need a man or a woman or a guy in a in a weird outfit to tell me what to believe and not to believe and how to do it. We have that relationship with God because Jesus broke down the wall between us. He had the, the veil separated and we can, through our faith in Him, go to God and He will tell us what to do. I believe that. He does it through His Word and through His Spirit. But these guys t- tend to think that they have to tell you how to do it. It's really interesting. Confession makes the healthy balance of worth and humility impossible in this situation. Believers will often confess to lesser crimes while holding out other secret crimes, such as criticism for the cult or its leaders, which they can't do, to gain favor and to receive leadership roles as a reward. Believers often develop an attitude that says, The more I accuse myself, the more I have the right to judge others, thereby feeding confessional behaviors. Sacred science is number five. The totalistic melu or cult generates an aura of sacredness around its doctrines. Holding it up as the ultimate moral vision for the ordering of human existence. There's an aura of sacredness around the things that it says is the absolute truth, and it will order... It will give you a plan of salvation. It will give you a plan that will teach you exactly what you need to do in order to return to live with God. Not a man, Jesus, but a plan. You see the difference? Questioning or criticizing basic assumption is prohibited or condemned. Reverence is demanded for all accepted doctrine, the originators of the doctrine, and the present bearers of the doctrine. You have to respect it all the way through. Now we get a lot of emails from people who are just, I'm telling you, we get hundreds, from people who are broken by religion. They are psychologically destroyed by the totalistic methodologies that have been uh, heaped upon them over the years from very young children all the way up into their adult years. And then we have people emailing saying, you are doing an evil thing because you're saying that all they need is a relationship with Jesus and you're kicking against the church. We're talking about the Mormon church now. And yet, I know the liberty that comes from following Christ and the, the absolute power to live a better life as a Christian than I ever could as a Latter day Saint. Sacred science offers considerable security to young people or people with young minds and hearts. Because it simplifies the world and answers a contemporary need to combine a sacred set of dogmatic principles with a claim to a science that embodies truth regarding human behavior. In other words, it is simple and easy and makes it easy not to think or be responsible for yourself. The cults are very big on that. And that's why they're very popular with young people because it gives them all the answers. They don't have to think. They know what's true. They know the truth. And then they're free to go on and just live their life as though they have it without ever having to think. Loaded language number six, almost through. The language of a totalist movement is characterized by thought-killing cliches. You ask a question, is that important to your salvation? That's a thought-killing cliche. When you ask a question and someone says, I don't think the prophet would ask that question, that's a thought-killing cliche. Communication occurs in all-encompassing jargon which is repetitiously used. I know, I know, I know. The church is perfect, but the people aren't. We just read an email that said that. I know the church is perfect, but the people aren't. That's a thought-killing comment. That's a communication that is all-encompassing jargon to kind of bring everything in and just make it simply uh, simple to uh, explain. There is a language of non-thought, meaning there's lots and lots of talk, but very little meaning. Lots of talk about ideas or, or things, but it just doesn't have any depth to it. Words are often given new meaning so that the group uses them differently from the outside world. Where one church, a Christian church, will say saved, another church will take saved that uses totalist methodologies, and they'll say it doesn't mean the same thing. So cults in China, what they do, communism, is they take words that are common language and they give them new meaning. So you have a new language. Doctrine over person is number seven. Doctrine over person occurs when there's a conflict between what a believer thinks and what they are experiencing. Every issue in life of a person can be reduced to a single set of principles to the point where a person actually believes they have the truth. They believe, really, that they have the truth because of these methodologies. And that, remember, these communists believe they have the truth. The guys at Waco absolutely believe they had the truth. There was no questioning them. There was no questioning David Koresh. There was no uh, questioning uh, Mao Tung. There's no questioning Joseph Stalin. There's no questioning someone who stands there and says, this is the truth. This is, there's just none. You just know. They all believed it. If the believer questions the beliefs of the group or its leader, she or he is made to feel that there's something wrong with them. The question is often turned on the questioner, and the questioner is then questioned themselves. The original question may never even get a response. Has that ever, has that ever happened to you? The assumption is always that doctrine is ultimately more valid than any aspect of actual human character or experience. All believers must submit their experience to accepted doctrines and truths. In the end, it's doctrine over person. Finally, number eight, Robert J. Lifton discovered there is a dispensing of existence in cults or the loss of individuality to organizational modes. Since the group has an absolute or totalist vision of truth, those who are outside the truth or the group are evil, unenlightened, unsaved, and out of favor. They are enemies. In extreme cases, they do not even have a right to an opinion, sometimes to even live. Those outside the group can always receive the right to exist by joining the group and changing their attitudes or their minds. Fear manipulation used if believers choose to leave the group is implemented by claims that defectors have fallen out of favor with God, are damned, or will have something bad happen to them should they continue to pull away from this group and everything that it represents. Let me give out the phone number. We'll start taking some calls, live calls tonight. Now listen briefly to what the word says as the operators take the calls. Listen to the diversity of conditions and the liberty of existence within the body. I don't even know where it is. In fact, I'm not going to read that scripture because I didn't input it. I'll just conclude with this. I imagine a religion where men and women love one another and accept one another as they are, as they come, as they desire to be known. And whether they stay in the group or not, these attitudes toward them will remain the same. Our duty as Christians is to love and accept and embrace. It is not to ostracize. Yes, you can disagree with sin, but it doesn't mean you disagree on love. I imagine a Christian religion without man-made expectations and demands, a place for scientists and artists, businessmen and women, homemakers and the homeless to worship and study the word of God together in peace and in truth. This is not utopian ideals. This is called Christianity. I imagine a church where saints serve each other without assignments or callings, where they break bread together willingly and learn to appreciate the liberty that Jesus affords. I imagine a church without collars and hemlines and suits and pretenses of the world, where judgments come from God alone and believers embrace all, all who come through the doors. I imagine a church where Jesus would undoubtedly be welcome in his robes and dirty feet and long hair if he had it and beard and his attitudes about religion of the day i imagine a christian church where jesus would be welcome where jesus would be welcome to sit as he is to do as he pleases and to love only as he knows how to love we're going to go to the phones we have douglas from salt lake city on line two douglas you're on heart of the matter douglas yes this is doug Doug, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, I was um, born and raised
1: for 53 years a Mormon. I lived in in, uh, Salt Lake City most of my life, and I had a number of friends along the way who had moved to Salt Lake City or moved to Utah from other parts of the country. These were people who uh, didn't understand Mormonism, uh, and and they often found themselves, uh, you know, a party to... The sting of Mormonism sometimes. I mean, these were, they weren't accepted because they didn't go to primary. They weren't accepted because they didn't go to young adults or MIA, we used to call it. These were friends of mine who often were ridiculed and sometimes, uh, you know, they, they, they felt really outcasts because they weren't Mormons. Yeah. If you live in a community, and it doesn't have to be a big city like Salt Lake, it's probably worse in a small town where the mayor, the bishop, the owner of the biggest business in town is probably the same guy. Yeah. And so everybody in town either worked for him, went to church with him, or lived next door to him. Yeah. And and it became community, culture and church. And it became very difficult for anyone who wasn't yeah. an active Mormon to almost even exist there. And sometimes I don't think that The Mormons themselves realize how they can, at times, mistreat individuals who who are Mormons. Yeah, you know, neighbors, friends, people they go to school with, but they're not Mormons.
0: I think Gordon B. Hinckley's tried to uh, alleviate some of those uh, cultural norms among the Mormons here in Utah. But uh, those things, I, I understand, they occur, especially in a church in a state that's dominated by a certain religion. But the thing that bothers me more are the uh, cultural demands within the church. Um, Yours is a social problem. I understand it. It's going to exist. And I think the church is trying socially to do better. They've made some comments about that. But within the church, it's brutal as far as conforming or being cast out. And they need to repent. The, The church is a hospital for the sick. It's not a place for the perfect. And you've got it all mixed up. Any of you apostles or anybody? Come on, man, let's kind of loosen it up and let people be real instead of trying to be perfect and fit into this conformed uh, existence. Thank you, Doug. Always good information from you. We're yeah. going to John on line one, a first-time caller. John, you're on Heart of the Matter.
2: Hello, uh, Sean. How's it going?
0: I'm doing well. How are you?
2: Great. God bless you and your family. You're doing a great job. I know that God's using you, especially with the knowledge you know from where you're coming from. Thanks, man. Um, well, first of all, I, uh, um, I know exactly what you're talking about because uh, my wife was LDS for many years. She felt unworthy. She felt like she, uh, you know, couldn't couldn't achieve or, or, or couldn't have a connection to God. And my in-laws are at the brink of divorce now. Uh, they basically want to split up. One wants to live somewhere else. The other person, you know, the... The other person w- wants to split up as well. And I see exactly how that culture and how they use, they use these techniques and how I, I, I see that they don't they can't see a light at the end of the tunnel.
0: Yeah, it's hopeless.
2: It's hopeless, but I know that Jesus is going to do a miracle.
0: Amen. I agree with you.
2: And yeah. I'm waiting for something, some kind of chaos, because that brings the chaos that's where God comes in with his hand to pick up the people and, and to pick up my in-laws and help them and to... To love them and, and, and for them to accept them as their savior. Yeah. And um, for instance, my my sister in law is just gonna about to leave on a mission this next week. And the only reason she's living is because she doesn't want to live at home. She told me that.
0: Excellent reason for a mission.
2: Uh, she's going to Phoenix or not Phoenix. She's going to some part of Arizona. I forgot where it's called. It's um, I think I think it is Phoenix.
0: Well, you, you brought up some good points, man. We're going to go on, but uh, thanks for watching and thanks for uh, calling. All right, thank you. All right, man. You know, they brought up, he brought up the word worthy. Uh, drives me absolutely stark staring mad. Uh, worthy. They got these guys asking you if you're worthy to do this. Jesus totally defined your worthiness as not being there. I mean, who knows what the guy asking you if you're worthy, what his thoughts are about you? He may be—he may be gay, asking you if you're worthy. Or he might be a—he may be—who knows? I don't know, you know. But everybody has their sins. No, I'm not worthy, but neither are you. That's the whole point. So I—the worthy thing blows my mind. That's something that's got to go. It's just got to go. All right, uh, we are going to Mike on line four. Mike, you're a first-time caller from Sandy. Hello. Hey, Mike. You're on Heart of the Matter.
1: Yeah. What's happening? Not much. How's it going?
0: Good. Is your TV on?
1: Yeah. I, I just muted it.
0: Okay. So what's happening, man?
1: Um, Like I said, I talked to the guy earlier. Um, Can you tell me what the deal is with this looking in the hat deal and, <laughs> and uh, getting the doctrine for the Book of Mormon? Yeah. What's up with that?
0: You know, we, I haven't covered uh, the translation process of the Book of Mormon, but... Uh, Essentially, and and this is all verifiable, if you guys start emailing me, say it's not, and it's a lie, you're wrong. I don't know. I just asked. Oh, no, not you. I'm talking to the audience. Uh, What it is, is Joseph Smith, uh, when he was young, maybe 12 or 13, he started seeking for treasure with his father, Uh uh, and he used a stone that he found in a well. Uh And uh, Dan Vogel's book, I highly recommend it, uh, Joseph Smith, Making of a Prophet, or uh, even um, LDS written book by um, Rough Stone Rolling by Bushman, Richard Bushman, two books, you should read those because they admit to it. And so what he did was, he not only found treasure using the stone, but when he came, found the golden plates, he translated those by looking at the stone in a hat And it started off that he had the plates under a cover, and then pretty soon the plates weren't there, and he would uh, translate, and then pretty soon uh, he was just reading through this rock, translating, and then he wasn't even looking at the rock. Then he was just translating from his mind. So uh, all of that is documented. The problem is, bottom line, the problem is, is the very stone he used to seek and find buried treasure for people throughout where his house was is the same stone that he supposedly translated the Book of Mormon, and okay. that is a fact.
1: All right, because I didn't know nothing about this, and my friend was telling me earlier today, and I thought, well, okay, and and I've been watching your show, and uh, I just thought it might. That's you know, it. To call and ask
0: you. It's a good question, and it's it's a, it's a viable one. Most members don't know that, or they'll dispute that. I've heard this, I don't know. I think. Uh, uh, Michael Quinn says that uh, the stone is actually in the possession of the first presidency that they have it in their offices in their church headquarters or in the temple at Salt Lake I don't know that that's fact but uh, you know from the poison tree comes some uh, some pretty ugly fruit well
1: I'm glad I, I had at least an intelligent question
0: you had an excellent question, thanks for calling hey uh, keep up the good work thanks a lot, okay, bye. God bless, bye bye we're going to uh, Brent, first-time caller from South Salt Lake on line three. Brent, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey. Hey. Thanks a lot. You got to turn your TV off. Brent, sir. you got to turn your TV off. Okay, hold on one second. Give me time to drink water. Hey. Hmm. I love your show, man. watch it every, t- every what's
3: today? Tuesday night, yeah, yeah, 8 o'clock. Thanks. It's a good show. I was flipping through and found it like three weeks ago, and I really like what you... I had an experience. I was working at a company, mm-hmm. and I actually dared to say that Joseph Smith was not a prophet of God, that he was a false prophet, and he's surely burning in hell. Excuse my language. I uh, dismissed. Yeah, and what happened? I was dismissed. Real- I was fired. How long did it take to get fired? Uh, I kept it up for about six months. People would ask me, they'd say, You don't believe in the in the in the Mormon church? I said, No. I do not. What did so they... they ask you what? Beware false prophets come to you in sheep's clothing and would leave the ravening wolves. And, you know Quoting the word, good man. Uh you know, it's it's funny. I was gonna also bring up something. You remember that movie that was out when we were kids, you know, I was about fifteen, the never ending story came yeah. out. I but, I'll try you. <laughs> yeah, I'm an old I'm an old man now, but uh, the church, the Mormon church ought to call itself the ever-changing story. I mean, uh, one day, you know. That's uh, a good Mormon stand-up down in Salt Lake, man. You're killing me with this stuff. <laughs> well, you know, the Da Vinci Code came out, and they were speculating on whether Jesus Christ was married or not. Yeah. Or Jesus. Yeah. And I saw on the news, on Channel 4 News, mm-hmm. here in Salt Lake, they said that the church has never taught that Jesus was married. My seminary teacher taught me that. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, if you read the Journal of Discourses, I've done my research.
0: I really researched it. I'm, I was a Mormon. Hey, you know what? We got a, we got a bunch of LD, ex-LDS people, or at least a few that I know of, and they're all shaking their head that they were taught Jesus was married, too. And so uh, I was taught Jesus was married. I taught that Jesus was married. Orson this- Pratt taught that he wasn't just married to Mary. Magdalene, he was married to Martha and
3: married the sisters of Lazarus. And the wedding in Cana, where he turned water into wine, was his wedding. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, That's because Talmadge you know I
0: mean? teaches that in Jesus the Christ. Yeah,
3: James Talmadge, yeah. yeah. I have that book. Yeah. That's a good book. Yeah. Other than no... <laughs> oh, yeah. Other than the, I mean, When he's talking about the New Testament, he's, yeah. he's dead on, right on the money, Talmadge.
0: Yeah. When he starts drifting off into the... I mean, you know, Jesus visited the old he, world, but I don't think Joseph Smith sorry. described it. That's because he plagiarized from Edelsheim in his stuff on the New Testament.
3: Oh, he used stuff that's, uh, there was, you know, the preface, the uh, dedicatory epistle to King James that's in most Bibles? Yeah. Right. There was a, uh, before that, before now, modern times, there was another thing in there. Oh. Another, like, preface. Yeah. He copied out of that. He, uh, used oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He Nephi own.
3: from the Apocrypha. Yeah. I mean, people really need to research the cult they're in. I did. Yeah. See, one time, I was yep. a bad guy. You and know. I I partied, and I <laughs> did wrong things. You know what? And I hit my knees, and I prayed to the Lord, and this feeling washed over me that I've never felt before, and it changed my life. Uh, no. I called Mormon friends and told them. They said, so what do you want, some money?
0: You you uh, you have an awesome testimony. Hey, dude, you have a good one, Matt. No, wait, wait, wait. E- email me and send it to me because I want to read it, but i got to keep it going on the show. Right, yeah, you can't
3: shack oh. with me all night. Hey, okay. I love your show, man. If Thanks. Somebody's getting the truth out to these poor brainwashed cult members.
0: <laughs> Thank you for that soft and gentle touch. All right. <laughs> all right, take it easy. Okay, we're going to John on line two, Salt Lake City, first time caller. John, you're on Heart of the Matter.
4: I am. And I'm a good LDS person, so... I'm
0: glad you told us up front.
4: uh, Well, I'm telling you up front that a lot of stuff that you're saying is absolutely nonsense.
0: Give me something that's nonsense that I said.
4: Well, that Joseph Smith had a stone. He had the Urim and Thummim. Have you read about that in the Old Testament?
0: Oh, my brother, my brother.
4: you read about it?
0: Yeah, I've read about it. Okay. I've read about the Urim and Thummim in the Old Testament. Wait a
4: minute. Let me talk a little bit.
0: I'll let you talk.
4: All right. Have you read the Book of Mormon?
0: Yes, I have.
4: Oh, good. Then you prayed about it, of course, because you said you believe in revelation from God, didn't you? Sure.
0: I believe God reveals things to us.
4: Okay. It's very interesting that you can say, oh, yes, we believe in revelation, but most Christian religions, in fact, all of them that I know of, have put revelation out of their minds. No, there are no more prophets. There's nobody that talks with God.
0: Okay, now is it my turn to talk briefly? I think when they're talking about revelation, they're talking about revelation for the body of Christ. We have the word of God as revelation, that's, that's true. And Christians don't go down a road where we're receiving more. But as far as personal revelation, I know Christians who believe God is guiding their day-to-day walk. So let's differentiate make sure we're understanding our terms.
4: Oh, I, I understand that. Okay. I'm reading the New Testament right now.
0: Fantastic, but you're not reading it with regenerated eyes.
4: Oh, come on!
0: Are you born again?
4: <laughs> I've been born again since I was baptized. How
0: does that? Since you were, does the, was the baptism the thing that got you born again?
4: No, nope. actually, it wasn't. It okay, took me, it took me years to
0: took you years to be born?
4: And know that I was a Christian and that I, I love Jesus Christ. I,
0: I don't deny that. I love him every day. I, you worship him? Oh, absolutely. You ought to read McConkie's talk, 1982, the Marriott, about worshiping Christ. Well, the apostle of the Lord that you follow said, we do not worship Jesus Christ. That's a quote. Do okay. you agree with that or no?
4: Uh, we do worship God and Jesus Christ. I okay,
0: well, that is not what is taught in your. Hold doctrine. on,
4: just a second.
0: I wait. I, I've let you do. I've let you do talking, and I, I do have to kind of represent to the audience what's being said. I want you to know that you are categorically blind to the his, oh, to the history. I have my master's degree in almost doctrine, history, and I am to the history being. of the translation of the Book of Mormon. You are categorically blind, and until you understand that, you're not going to get anywhere with these beliefs that you're embracing. Joseph Smith used a seer stone, a rock, from the well. He put it in hats, he carried it with him, and he translated that book that you hold as sacred scripture using that.
4: That's sheer baloney.
0: Okay, you know what? I challenge any Latter-day Saint to give me references that show it baloney. I'll bring the references to show you that it's true. I
4: would like to sit down with you one-on-one. As long as you don't bring a gun, we're fine. Oh, I won't bring a gun. All I bring is the Word of God. Okay, you mean the Bible? Both that and the Book of Mormon. Well,
0: you can just stop with the Bible. Listen, when Latter-day Saints call, I get criticized because I'm quick with you. You're trying to, in a very nice, you're an older gentleman, you sound sincere, but you're trying to sound like everything is just fine and dandy. You don't know your facts, sir, master's degree or not.
4: Oh, I beg your pardon. Uh, you can beg
0: I, all you want, you don't know your facts.
4: person like you... Okay, you can get pejorative
0: and you can attack hey. me as a person, but I'm just telling you, when it comes to the history of your church and the translation of the Book of Mormon, you do not know your facts. I'm staying on topic. You hey, don't know your facts. Let's stay
4: on topic. Okay,
0: we got to end it. Do you haven't. you read this? Parting blow. You read this from Mormon? Read Richard Bushman. He's in the stake presidency, Columbia University professor emeritus. Rough stone rolling. Read that book. Just came out. Ask him about the uh, stone that Joseph used. You are misled, sir.
4: No, you are misled. No, I am. Well, look at. Sorry. We can
0: sit here and say this back and forth all night. I have facts. You don't
4: i have a christian
0: background
4: i am a christian i believe in jesus christ i believe jesus god and i don't understand where you are coming from well say we are a cult that is the most abominable thing you could possibly say
1: god have a father did god have a father
4: of course
0: (laughs) need i say more God has a father. Is Jesus a created being? You Need saying? I say more? I don't know. What's necessary for your salvation? I don't Need I say more?
4: His background, but I do know this, he had a son,
0: Jesus Christ. Oh, you you don't know his background? Well, do you? No, but I know what the LDS church teaches. Now you're saying that doesn't? See, what you're doing now, you're starting to go down the LDS thing of pretending th- not to know things. I think you are a hypocrite. I don't, am oh, not a hypocrite. So long. I'm out here giving it straight to you. You are the one who's being a hypocrite because you're saying one thing and then you're backtracking and say you're not sure.
4: You don't believe in prayer. I am so sorry for you.
0: I don't know where that came from. Oh, I'm say, tired. oh we Hey, listen, man. Care. Listen, let's just agree to disagree. You can go on and follow Joseph and the things you, you're saying are not true that are. And I'll continue to follow the Bible. I'll put my faith and trust in Jesus for my salvation only. And at the last day, we'll see where we both stand. Okay? Got it. <laughs> All right, man. Laugh away. Take care. Tatiana, first time caller from Sandy on line one. Tatiana, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, hello! Hello, how are you?
5: I'm well. How are you?
0: Oh, I'm getting weary. What's? Oh, happening? well. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm doing good. Tell me what's oh, happening. wonderful!
5: I was just, um, I was an LDS. I, I was. My family was baptized when I was three years old. Uh-huh. I, uh huh. I I left when I was about twenty-one, and one thing that um, for the LDS people that might be questioning, and um, might be in fear of um, accepting Christ because of the condemnation that will come from their loved ones. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I couldn't go on my mission. My father was a bishop at the time, and I, when I gave them the news that I wasn't going to go, they told me they were going to make my life Make your life miserable? Um, No, it's amazing. Um, I became very ill years later. I had narcolepsy, catatonic for most of the day, and they would call me every day and tell me I was being punished for leaving the church. Wow. Um, When I was finally able to sit up in bed and read, I picked up my Bible and I prayed. I I prayed that God would reveal to me the truth, that I needed to know that if indeed I was being punished because I left the church, that I I needed to know that. And what I found was the amazing love that God has for me and for everyone.
0: Praise God.
5: Um, It is hard to leave. It is hard to say, um, I no longer believe that. I had my doubts. I, I checked them out for Christians. If you tell a Christian something, this is funny that you know you say, oh, I was reading the other day and I came across this. And usually they they will ask you where. Mm-hmm. Not that they you know some might doubt some. We ask where it is. Mm-hmm. We want to know where it is. Mm-hmm. In the Bible it says test all things. Sure. Um, you're not just you know in in Proverbs it says fools just believe whatever they hear, but you can't be a fool because your salvation depends on it, not just your salvation, but for me, every day, the first thing I do is I, I get on my face, I humble myself, and I pray to the Lord because without the Lord, my day, I, you know, I'm stressed and I'm frustrated and I, I'm not the vessel that God wants me to be. And I can say I'm great and I can do it, but I can't. And I, that's one difference, I think, between Christians and LDS people. He says that, you know, he helps the, those that humble themselves, but he resists those that that um, enlarge themselves and, and are prideful. Um, and when you speak to an LDS person, you do it out of love. It's not easy to tell someone that, sometimes you don't even know hey you know I love you and I was way across the park and the Holy Spirit prompted me to come and speak to you and I don't know who you are you're gonna insane but God loves you
0: God loves you As a beautiful testimony and you probably helped many Christians out there gave them strength to decide to step out in love and talk to their LDS friends uh, family, whoever they are. You also brought out some good points um, about, you know, the Bereans, they were, um, they were complimented for not just following the apostles' doctrine, but for going and searching the scriptures and finding out for themselves the truth. And you make a good point with Christians uh, wanting to know where that was written. Where did you read that? Where, where is that? And going and searching it out versus people who have just been told what the story is. We had a call just a minute ago like that, and they believe it, and they don't look at anything else. And so uh, a really great call, Tatiana. I really appreciate it. We're going to move forward, though.
5: Okay. And just, you know, to those that are afraid of, you know, embracing Christianity, God gives you strength.
0: Yes, He does. He,
5: you know, He gives you the strength to... And he also says, I will be your father, and I will be your family.
0: And they'll learn that as they, as they turn their will over to him. And
5: Thank my you. family, you know, they gave me a hard time at first. But, but it happens. back, You know, and if they truly love you, they, they will love you regardless. And they might need you to lead them into salvation. Amen. Amen. Oh, Thank God you so bless much, you, doing Thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. You-
0: bye. We're going to Jimmy on line four from Salt Lake City. Jimmy, you're on Heart of the Matter.
6: Hi, thank you. I wanted to comment uh, on this kind of, we'll bring this together as just a short thing here, okay? Okay. Um, okay. okay.
0: Jimmy, there, Jimmy, you gotta turn your TV off. Okay, it's off. All right. Hi, Sean. Hi.
6: Hi, I wanted to say that uh, one of the statements in the Book of Mormon, a word used there called priestcraft and it's it yeah. talking about how the the, the Roman Catholic Greeks had a priestcraft because of their their supposed uh, religious powers to transform the elements Yeah.
0: Which was a huge mistake. appreciate your comments and call it's uh be replayed on the internet for all over the world and uh we're gonna go to the next one to get fit one in before we end thank you thanks so much bye bye we are going to james first time caller salt lake city james you're on heart of the matter you uh have one you have two minutes james 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 is not there uh, anyway, we love you. And I know this was a harsh one because we're talking about cultic and, and stuff like that. But I love the LDS. You need to be born again. If you haven't been born again, you need to turn your life over to the Lord. We'll have more messages about that in the future. In the meantime, tune in next week on Heart of the Matter. We'll see you then.
4: I'm on the ride, going nowhere. the dawn's waiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light-filled monkey start.